All right, welcome back to another episode of We're Spanning Time. This is a podcast in which we explore the films of a particular year. This season's year is 1995. I am Bud Catino. And I am Beth Martini. For today's episode, we are covering The City of Lost Children, directed by Marc Caro and Jean-Pierre Junet, and 12 Monkeys, directed by Terry Gilliam. Um, what? Why did we choose these movies? Obviously, besides that they're awesome, but... What, yeah, what is your relationship to these movies, Beth? Well, so I started watching... Um, I, I can't remember. It, it must have been right around the same time. I saw City of Lost Children for the first time after I went down like a rabbit hole of uh, what else the folks behind Amelie did, basically. Mm-hmm. Because, yeah. like, you know, I saw that movie and I was like, oh my god, it's so good. And then I found out that they did City of Lost Children and Delicatessen, which is also awesome if you haven't seen that. Um, And sort of the same thing happened with uh, my fascination with Terry Gilliam because I saw Brazil when I was living in Olympia in the theater. And I was like, this is incredible. And then I went down like a little Terry Gilliam rabbit hole. But then I never... 12 Monkeys was like not anything that I I never I didn't watch it for the first time I think until like maybe during the pandemic like lockdown yeah okay um but I definitely was like looking at all of 1995 and thinking like what thematically and stylistically could possibly like fit with City of Lost Children um and I was like I think 12 monkeys would be a good choice. And then having watched both of them, I definitely feel like it's true. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're both very weird, eccentric French films. Yeah. <clears throat> I know that I don't think 12 monkeys is not really a French film, although it is, you know, based on the Jeti, Yes, uh, which is a French film. Did you watch, I watched that recently, although I was drunk at the time. <laughs> so I don't remember. So I do, I, I do a lot of stuff when I'm just drunk. I watch a lot of movies when I'm drunk. <laughs> Late at night, which, uh, oh no, my little, uh, my little chihuahua is just like up and deciding to leave the room. Oh, sad. <laughs> Let's see. She's like, I've see? had enough of hearing these clicks and stuff. I think it's cause, uh, I boisterously started to speak. I think the podcasting voice freaked her <laughs> out. So she just is like up and wandering around. Are you She's okay? Like- That's kind of funny because, uh, you know, Rachel has a really nice little calm voice, sweet calm voice. Mm-hmm. And she does, you know, Zoom work calls all day, every day in here. And Spider just like, just like zonked out with her tongue <laughs> out, just like loves it. And in fact, um, we were, Spider and, I, Spider and I were up early Friday morning, I think, or Thursday morning. And Spider just like fit her lunch and like went to Rachel's office door where Rachel was having a call and was like trying to get in because she just wants to like bask in Rachel's sweet uh, yeah. uh, soft voice sweet soft voice exactly yeah um okay so uh you'll we can just clip this in but i did find a really fascinating 1995 um factoid event mm. moment go for it uh apparently in the middle of 1995 is at when the ebola virus was ramping up oh which, interesting uh, which would not have been happening while the movie was in production, right? Because if it was released in 95, then, like, it would have been, like, 
finished probably in 94, you know, like they would have been filming in 93, doing post in 94, release in 95. So I wonder what it felt like for people to watch 12 Monkeys and be like, wait, what? (laughs) Like how, um, how big was Ebola at that time. That was like, it was starting to come into like worldwide attention. Yeah, Well, cause like it had only killed 244 people, but I think that that was like the lead up to it getting really bad. Yeah. It's, it is truly, truly terrifying. Um, because like the, like the, the, what it does and how it's transmitted. Like the crazy thing was like people were getting it from burying the dead. Oh, which is so gnarly. So fucking gnarly. Um, also possibly AIDS. Like, because this is like post like the big, like, I mean, this is like, you know, the t- not tail end, but it was like the AIDS epidemic was like, just out of control. So we had like these two very publicized, very nasty viruses murdering people. So I wouldn't be surprised if either of those were influential in the in the plot line of 12 Monkeys. Yeah. 12 Monkeys plot line does not reflect on anything that's happened recently. Luckily. Although luckily, luckily for us. <laughs> Relatable. <laughs> Isolated toxic people uh, trying to figure out What's what's going on with this disease and how we can possibly stop it? Yeah, and then not doing anything to actually stop it. Yeah, just just fucking around with time travel and being crazy. Yep. Yeah. Being uh, unnecessarily nostalgic for bygone times, and also and also trying and trying some chicanery to try and destroy the system at the same time. Yeah, doesn't doesn't track for contemporary times at all. Not at all. Not in the least. Um, so, uh, Le Jete, uh, I was reading about and then kind of started watching, but it's fascinating how it really is almost beat by beat, mm-hmm. uh, the, the 12 monkeys movie. Um, and also that it was all done in still photographs. Yeah. I love that. Uh, I think that's great. I, I think I saw Le Jete. I think I must have been like in my early twenties, maybe living in Davis, so like twenty one, twenty two. That tracks. And yeah, it's great. And then I didn't, yeah, I didn't know. Uh, I had seen Twelve Monkeys before that, and so yeah, it was an epiphany for me when I saw Le Jete. Uh That yeah, uh, the one is obviously based on the other, but right. it's cool. It's fucking rad, and I like. I think they like reuse stills over and over again, which I really like. Oh, that's um, nice. I didn't yeah. get all the way through it, but I did. I thought it was really, really striking. Uh, what What are you reading, watching, listening to, creating? What are you What are you doing for fun these days out there? For For fun. Uh, yeah. <laughs> seen anything good recently? Seen anything good? Um, so we like. I love I love just having like a TV show on in the background while I'm like working. It's kind of just like a like a comfort blanket. So I started rewatching Battlestar Galactica, the night, the 2003, not the seventies. <clears throat> and that first season is a banger. Like it's so good. Mm. And then the second season, like starts to like kind of turn into like military propaganda bullshit. And <clears throat> excuse me. Um, 
And but it's still like funny to watch like something that has like such terrible CG in it. Um and then tonight we're gonna go see John Wick four in the theaters, which is oh, pretty sick. fun. Yeah. I'm, I'm very excited for you. I really want to as well. Uh I'm so jealous that you have a partner that's down to watch John Wick. I don't have one of those, unfortunately. <laughs> um I'm all alone in my oh. John Wick love. Uh, really you don't even have one friend who's like yeah no i probably no i probably do yeah uh yeah i could think of a couple friends here in town that would would be down but i want to go back and uh you know i've got such a bad memory i'm gonna go watch all the the first three again i think today is the day today's the day well so what we did was we watched um a recap of one and two because we knew we had seen one and two and then we rewatched three last night oh okay that could save some time Yep. Yep. It was, it was a good move because we had combined two and three into just one really long movie in our minds. Okay. Like I've seen one enough times. Like I've probably seen one like five times. So like I've seen it enough to like definitely have the the story of one like nailed in hilariously though in, okay. It might not be in two, but definitely in one and three, there's a game of Thrones actor in that movie in the movies which i just think think is hilarious because there's only like 25 british actors in the world (laughs) (laughs) in existence Uh uh-huh and they're all in everything that requires uh um some kind of british ish actor is it the same actor in one and three Mm -mm. it's two different ones oh two different game of thrones actors interesting Uh yeah uh i never got past like season two of game of thrones so uh yeah, I can't, I can't bro down with you about this. That's fine. As a person who also read the books, I mm-hmm. can tell you that you're not <clears throat> you're not really missing much. Yeah. Uh, season one and two, seasons one and two were fairly. One was very faithful to the book, as mm-hmm. I'm sure you can attest. Uh, but seasons three through the end were just not faithful to the books they were still fun they were very entertaining the last season was just like uh the showrunners just decided to shit on their entire fan base oh really oh was it was it like lost where they were like okay let's just wrap this shit up and get out of here we got like other things to do you know it felt a little bit like that it felt like they crammed two and a half seasons worth of content into one season uh the ending was just stupid it was just so dumb and you know i found out relatively recently that amelia clark was suffering from some very serious health issues Hmm. apparently she had two strokes during like she um daenerys Targaryen, the actress who plays daenerys really that young person had two strokes yeah she has now basically doctors are like you're lucky that you can speak dang yeah like her memory is shot like a lot of like not good physical ramifications and so although they didn't talk about it at the time in retrospect i'm wondering if that influenced how they ended the show Mm. um because she was such like a massive part that like they couldn't afford her to not be able to finish the show so they kind of just like mashed everything down into eight unfulfilling episodes 
Um, I was watching, I was on the internet and like some stupid BuzzFeed listicle popped up and it was like, people, like men on the internet are being assholes to Amelia Clark for aging because she's not fucking 20 anymore. And uh-huh. so then I read the article and it was because she like posted like a, like a, I'm still here picture basically that was like her in her house with like having a cup of tea without makeup on and like shitty men on the internet were like oh remember when she was a sex symbol or some bullshit like that yeah yeah and like buzzfeed was just like remember why men are gross here's a (laughs) bunch of reasons in case you needed a reminder men are still disgusting truly so I'm excited for you to see John Wick. I'm probably going to watch John Wick this week, like I said. Um, yes. Rachel and I did watch a movie, and we did discover a genre that we could we could share in film, which is uh, overblown-up uh, Chinese epic, like war epics. Wow. Because uh, Rachel doesn't like, you know, punching and, and shooting movies like John Wick, but yeah. uh, if it's couched in, like, you know, insane period piece epic style like uh the movie shadow which we saw last night have you ever seen this movie i have not came out in 2018 um director is uh i'm gonna ruin i'm gonna mispronounce his name uh zang yumo uh it's very good it's black and white and it's it's kind of a very ridiculous um plot premise it's like this commander of the king's army um Growing up, his uncle found like an, another boy who looked just like him, and he like always kept him in the shadows as his shadow what in case he needed to replace him for any reason. And this commander gets in a duel and he loses, and he's so fucked up that they just like tag his shadow in um, and to pretend to be him. So his shadow is just living his life while he's like really creepily. Um, is recovering in like the caverns underneath his house. Um, and his shadow is just like uh, sleeping with his wife and like carrying on, you know, stuff at court and political intrigues and shit. And it's, you would really like it. It's kind of has a, I don't know. I don't know if I should say this it has like a Kurosawa feel, feel mm. to it. Mm-hmm. It's real gritty. It's nasty. The characters are like, uh, you can really feel their pain. They're uh, really emotive um, yeah, it fucking moves. There's rad battle scenes. They fight people with metallic umbrellas. It's it's definitely I, worth a watch. I love that Rachel loves a period piece. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. Uh, <laughs> Rachel has like bad filters when it comes to movies, and I and it can't be like too dramatic. Otherwise, she just like it pops her like uh, suspension of disbelief just falls apart if things are too dramatic. Mm, so I think mm-hmm. this, this one, this one is quite dramatic, but it kind of walks uh, the line a little bit. And uh, yeah, there's lots of stabbing people with swords and metal umbrellas. And, but I think because it's so exotic to her that it can kind of keep her attention um, as opposed to like a, you know, a punch, like a standard, you know, like extraction or one of those movies or, or Ant-Man and the Wasp, uh, which is, the immediate one she brought up was like, she just could not pay attention to at all. Uh, Cause it's very yeah, exciting. That's super fair. Um, but yeah, uh, we watched that last night. Uh, have you read the Murderbot uh, diaries? Have no. you ever talked about Murderbot? 
Uh, I'm rereading Murderbot because that's very much like the character of Murderbot themselves. Uh, Mur- the Murderbot Diaries by Martha Wells is like a sci-fi uh, series that I can always go back to and I always find endlessly entertaining and, and just almost like a guilty pleasure. But uh, Murderbot is a security robot, sec unit, um, mm-hmm. way, way in the future. And all sec units, security units have uh, a governor module that govern- governs how they interact with their human clients. But Murderbot, Murderbot has hacked its governor, so the governor doesn't work anymore. And usually in movies, when a second unit goes rogue, like they just go around killing people. But like in actuality, Murderbot just wants to be left alone, and just wants to watch like movies on its like internal Netflix stream, and like what like listen like read novels and listen to music and watch movies. It's pretty much like a giant teenager, where it's like very, you know, it's made. It's a human robot. Uh, construct and so it's clones cloned human parts to it and it's very uncomfortable with its body it's very uncomfortable with Mm. the fact that it's part human um it's almost i always say this uh i might be talking out of my ass but it's almost kind of a perfect like queer ya narrative where you have like this character that doesn't have a gender uh is you know has a revelation about its true nature and and goes to great lengths and makes sacrifices to like really bring its its true nature to fruition risks its life to really truly be who it is yeah um, and then is constantly having cares about other people but hates that it cares about other people and then eventually finds its you know community in the most unlikely of places it's almost it's, it's sort of like a classic you know queer narrative yeah no that's i mean that's really that really it is and you're you're rereading this right now or yeah for like the fifth time yeah 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 i'm about to i think i'm about to start reread um the the broken earth series by nk jemison oh do it yeah so, well, so good. i i got the books for christmas hmm. a few years ago but i th- i want to say that i read them during my covid like period like my covid recovery last year and so i remember them but i don't really remember them you know what i mean like i was just kind of like putting information into my head um but i distinctly recall like loving that series and it's also kind of has that same sort of like thing of what you're describing about like the realization of like who you are it definitely has some of those like ya themes even though it's really 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 like well written like not the ya isn't well written but it has like it's like dealing with like a a, like adult themes of like you know uh, care and what does it mean to be present it's also really incredible because like you know, N.K. Jemison is one of the only modern black female science fiction authors. And this is the first time that I've ever read a, a science fiction book where the care, like the main character was also black. And mm. I thought that that was really, ext- it's really extraordinary mm-hmm. in that regard. Um, I also love a broken um, timeline narrative, like a dual, like a dual or triple timeline because it like really like forces you to pay attention 
yeah, you have to do your work and yeah. the, the author is not going to do the work for you. And yeah. so you just have to really pay attention. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, yeah. And s- similarly to the Murderbot, similarly to Murderbot, the main character of the Broken Earth trilogy is like, I have these insane powers that I have to hide from people. Yep. And I can never truly let anyone in. And I really care for people like so, so much in this like gut clenchingly way. Um, but it's, yeah. You know, and, and also going on a journey and then finding like, yeah, uh, like community and allies in, in very strange places. Right. Like very, what is <laughs> very strange, like, like that trans woman that, um, she finds she meets you know on the road yep um yeah her turn, who turns out spoiler who turns out to have been her weird friend from when she was a kid i think so yeah yeah that's right and, yeah. and then like also just like the it also like really touches on like these themes of like you know what does it mean to be a caregiver mm-hmm. when you can't give yourself care right so there's like a lot of like humanity given to like generational trauma too mm-hmm. because like oh, it yeah. very much has that like under underlying narrative of like the main character like experiences this like emotional and physical trauma and then has to then grapple with also being a parent and also like not being able to be present for her children and making difficult decisions and terrible realizations and then kind of watching it all crumble anyway. It's like really, it was a fucking, it was an excellent and like, you know, um, this is a spoiler. So if you haven't read these books, you should probably just fast forward a little bit, but like the realization that it was our earth all along and that it was our moon all along was just like it was like it there was like i just had like a ha- aha moment i was like oh shit because it's not it's not explicitly clear until you realize that that's what it is and then you're like okay that was really well done like yeah. so like well couched in the storyline that like i was transported to a not a, to a fictional planet in a fictional solar system until i realized it wasn't that yeah, yeah. Which I thought was awesome. Um, All right. F- uh, for further reading on um, black female sci-fi writers with black main characters, you can see Octavia Butler also. True. Uh, true, true, rest true. In peace. Yeah. R- yeah I, I, indeed. I, I had a, a customer who he just like went off on Dune one day and, and I looked at all the other uh, his coworkers in the break room and they're just like buried their faces in their hands. But I was like, okay, lay it on me. Cause I love Dune also. And, yeah. um, and then I was like, you know, when like sci-fi or even just reading people are like, Oh yeah, you like this author. What about this author sort of situation? Um, right. I was kind of doing that to him. And I was like, do you like, <laughs> I was like, do you like NK Jemison? Do you like uh, Octavia Butler? And he liked neither of them. And I was like, well, Sure. And I was like, I had this realization that I was like, well, you're a middle-aged man and yep. NK Jemison and especially Octavia Butler write about uh, what it means to be like a not sexy black woman with uh, a family to care for. And right. just like the stress of living in that role and having yep. a female body and 
giving birth <laughs> like and shit just being like not heroic or glamorous right yeah yep so yeah very much no, that no surprise this random middle-aged man did not uh did not was not down for parable this hour uh, and then the only other thing that I did for my spring break was I made a super insanely delicious banana bread. Like, so good. I used the topping from um, a, uh, what are, of course, I can't think of what it's called now. It's like a French pastry where you cook the fruit or vegetable face down in a pan and let it get caramelized and then you put pastry on top of it and then you flip it over it's mm. basically like a bougie upside down pineapple cake sort of thing um but i did basically an upside down banana bread and it was outstanding that sounds fucking amazing yeah tartatine have you had that before no so traditionally uh the tartatine is used you make it with onions so like an onion tartatine is where you take like fresh spring sweet onion and you cut it and then you put it like half down in a pan with a bunch of butter and a little bit of sugar and you let it cook until it caramelizes Mm -hmm. and then you place like pastry on top of it so like puff pastry or like short pastry or whatever and then you bake mm. it and then you flip it over and all the like juicy caramely juices spread out over it so i did the tartatine style to the um bananas which is what effectively influenced the 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 classic pineapple upside down cake but then i made like a classic sour cream base um walnut banana bread over it so it's like this like sweet crispy dark like bit slight slightly bitter caramelized banana situation on top and then just like a much less sweet almost savory banana bread so good that sounds really good i'm not even a sweets person i'm not yeah i'm not a bakery person but that sounds really good i mean i don't love very sweet things but this really hit the spot i'll send you the recipe for it maybe we can post it in the show notes Yes, in the show notes. That's Which we correct. will have when we post this. <laughs> One day when we're proper podcasters. Indeed. This week, I'm, I'm going to edit this week. Amazing. We'll have two in a can. All right. <laughs> you want to review these movies? We'll just, yeah. we'll just do like 10 minutes each. And this podcast will just be about us like, oh, what'd you read? <laughs> That's cool. Um, you very graciously watched this with me yes. while I was, where was I? Iowa. I think I was in Wisconsin. Iowa. I think this was the week you were in Iowa. Yeah. Well, I was staying in Wisconsin, but working in Iowa, right over the Mississippi River. Um, Oh, man. That's why everybody was so nice, because you were in Wisconsin. People were quite nice. Did I tell you that uh, Thursday night, I like, you know, I had wrapped up a very good installation for work. And, you know, Thursday, Friday is when I travel out. So Thursday, I, I like, you know, like to eat a good meal and go drink some whiskey. And then... I was like, okay, oh, there's live music. I guess I'll just play drums with these random people. What? And <laughs> which is really like a that's, that's kind such of a, hy- a you thing to do. Oh, sure, yeah. That's I mean, that's a hyperbolic way of saying that. Like, I sat on their drum box and like banged the drum with my hands, and they allowed me to do it for <laughs> one or two songs. But I also had just enough self awareness to stop. Uh, that's the key before I'd gone too far. 
That's yeah. the key. Before you kicked the actual drummer off of the kit <laughs> and then started playing moderately well. Well, it was a uh, it, it wasn't it was like a jam night, oh. like local musicians, and it was like you could tell that they all play with, with each other all the time. One of them was the bar owner who I, I got kind of chatty with. And uh, no, they had like, you know, one of those boxes that you can sit on it and then you just like hit it with your hands and it's like a drum and snare oh, sure. part. Yeah. One of those things. And like, yeah, I was just like, you know, drinking my double whiskeys, uh, which is a bad habit I have these days. And then I was just like, what? Why is no one playing that drum box? Like, this is kind of <laughs> anyone can <laughs> Any... anyone can do it. I can I just mean, picture you like holding a glass of whiskey, walking up and like pointing and like making eye contact and like. I just eh, sat down. Eh, I just, eh. I just, yeah, pretty much, pretty much. I just sat down and did it. Incredible. Um, yeah, I, I could send you a video. Uh, oh, I would love that. Because yeah, the older couple that I was chopping it up with took videos of me doing it. They were very nice. Uh, and yes. if I ever go back, I will definitely see them again. I'll definitely go back to that bar again because everyone was super nice. It was cool. Dude, um, Wisconsin, the Midwest is awesome. Like, this is awesome yeah it's the best yeah iowans iowans are nice wisconsin's are nice it's kind of funny because it's like to you know we're from san diego san diego is a very large place geographically yeah. and yeah. like i was on the wisconsin side of the river and and i was like yeah there's kind of some fucked up roads over there and then this wisconsin guy was like hey what's wrong with your roads why do you guys have dirt roads to someone from <laughs> iowa and i was like oh is this a real thing like and I was like, what do you guys eat around here? And they're like, well, on the Wisconsin side, they eat this. And in Iowa, they eat this. I was like, are you are you serious? Like, <laughs> how is this not just the same place? But Truly. That's, that's There's definitely more regional variants in shorter areas. You know, yeah. like in all of San Diego County, you can get the identical burrito anywhere that you go. Whereas, right. you know, if you go from the south side of Chicago to the north side of Chicago and you ask for a sandwich, there's no guarantee you're going to get the same sandwich because they're going to have a different style of doing it, like just like nine miles away from each other. You know what right. I mean? Like, right. But it's I don't know. I I literally like just like a little shout out to the Midwest. I fucking love it here. It's the only place that I will voluntarily live in the U.S., I'll move somewhere else if we have to for school or for work. Like if Trevin gets like, you know, a super cool space job or something, I'll right. move to wherever that is or like whatever. But I don't think I want to move outside of like the greater Chicagoland area for like for anywhere else in the U S mm -hmm. voluntarily basically you, like, you wouldn't come back to new york like um, say you got a design job or something yeah so <laughs> yes that's but that's not voluntary that's like following like work work it's the means of survival basically like i wouldn't move back to new york unless i had a stellar stellar job like that it would have to be like incredible um because like I would rather live in Europe, honestly. Like I would mm -hmm. rather move to um, like a, I would rather move somewhere that I've never been, you know, that I've never lived. Because I've lived in a lot of places in the states, like a lot of fucking places. Right. But in the Midwest, like you know, if we we were just like we got really into this YouTube channel of about small spaces. It's called Not Too Small. Like how small of an apartment 
can a couple functionally live in? Like, how can you make a small space well-designed, beautiful, and easy to live in is effectively what these YouTube shorts are about. And um, we started like really thinking about like, how much space do we actually need? Do we need to have all of this shit? Could we have in our home specifically, like, could we have a studio? Like, could I have a studio instead of having it in my apartment? The answer is absolutely. I don't need to live in this, like in a space that's got this much stuff in it. Um, but how small would be too small. And so we went on this like very brief moment of looking at like apartments for sale rather than full homes or buildings for sale in, in Chicago and discovered that there is an apartment for sale right now in the Wilco buildings. Like um, it's also called uh, the actual name of it is marina city i think but you know which ones i'm talking about like the corn cob buildings from the mm -hmm. cover of the wilco record oh uh, yeah, yeah 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 so iconic chicago architecture they this these buildings were built to be like the thing that revitalized the downtown to encourage more people to live in the urban center they are called Marina City because it was supposed to be like you could literally drive your boat into the bottom if you had one and park it there. There was like a hair salon. There was like a small grocery like you could drive your car up the spiral so that like you could park and then like get out on your building like it's there. The buildings wow. are wild and like, you know, really novel co concrete construction that like hadn't really, really been done in this way like the round concrete with this like wedge building style it they're they're marvels of architecture um but like the apartment is like two hundred sixteen thousand dollars or something holy shit jesus and it's not it's like not small it's like i think the listing was for like 526 square feet which like is small but it's not it's, sm it's like a two it's like got a two bedroom footprint and the hoa fees are only like six hundred dollars which is hmm. very affordable for these types of buildings but like to have an apartment in a in a like literally downtown like it is yeah. on the chicago river yeah. and like iconic architecture like just it kind of really like I don't know. It sort of changed my ideas of like what I would want to be comfortable. You know, I used to think I needed to live in an apartment like the size of the one we're in now. And now I'm like, man, if I'm going to stay here, maybe I don't need to buy a house. Maybe we could just buy a really dope apartment and like that would be that, you know? I mean, Chicago downtown, that area is just like, uh, yeah, this last time I saw you was my kind of my first time going there. It's absolutely gorgeous. It's, it's insane, amazing. right? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's beautiful. Um, maybe I should buy one of those apartments. You guys can just live there. That's what we should do. That would rule. Just pay um, my mortgage. There you go. I'll, I'll send you the listing. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, let's talk about these movies. All right. So, yeah. Uh, wait, I had some other tangent I wanted to talk about, but let's not. <laughs> okay. City of Lost Children. Mark Caro, Jean-Pierre Junet. Written by uh, 
I don't know. I don't speak French. Do, uh, do you want me to try? Yeah. Are you a French okay. person? Go for it. I mean, I I should be able to speak it. I've taken several French classes. Okay. Um, hold on. Let me pull it up. Okay. All right. Uh, Guy, I, Guy, Adrien, Jean-Pierre Junet, and Marc Caro are the writers. Starring uh, Ron Perlman, Daniel Amifouk, and Judith v- Vite, I want to say. Vite? That's yeah. me, right? Yep, yep. Okay, stop playing that right now. IMDb wants to like just automatically play the preview when you open it. Um, yeah, so... Did City of Lost Children win any awards? They did. Like hella awards. Yeah. I mean, it was a it's it was like an incredible, an incredible film. They were nominated for some like really incredible films. Um so I think it was mostly like foreign awards. Oh foreign awards, I wanna yeah. say. Yeah. Uh, like the Felix Award. I don't know what that is for Best Cinematography, Best Foreign Language, Best Costume Design by Jean-Paul Gaultier. Um, the cinematographer, Darius Kanji, is like kind of insane. Let me pull up his Wikipedia page here. Um, he did Delicatessen. Yeah. He did just ones that stick out to seven. He's like, a, he's a Fincher guy. Mm. Evita, Stealing Beauty, Alien Resurrection, which is... Uh, Jean-Pierre Junet's next film. Oh, um, I'm really excited for that, Loki. Yeah. <laughs> no, 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 that's his next film that he did after this movie. Oh, I thought you were saying, because yeah. isn't there another Alien? That, no, it was the Predator movie that just came out. Oh, does it? Yeah. Yeah, apparently it's very good. Side okay. note. Um, yeah, so Alien Resurrection is Junet's next film, and I think Mark Caro was, which is, yeah, his longtime collaborator you know delicatessen was their first movie together and also city of lost children um i think mark caro went to work on alien resurrection and was just like fuck this like this sucks like it's a big budget hollywood film there's all these like restrictions and then i don't think they work together again because by the time amelie comes around it's just uh jump here or Jeanne at that point. You, i, I want to like now i want to like deep dive into the the hot goss about why they stopped working together. Um, I wonder if Mark Caro was bummed that he didn't get asked to come on to alien resurrection. No, he did. He did like, um, I don't know. I think he did like six weeks of like pre-production work. Oh, and and then I think he was like, dude, fuck all these. Like it yeah. just was like a big budget Hollywood film. And he's like, fuck this shit. I don't like, we're indie filmmakers. I don't want to do this. Right. And then, he might have been bummed when it came time to do Amelie, which is very much like in line with their aesthetic. Uh, but yeah, I don't think I don't think he came back for Amelie. Fascinating. Yeah. Um, they were nominated for the Palme d'Or, which is like the highest award you can win at Cannes. Right. Um, the César uh, Film Festival or Awards was Best Production Design also nominated for music, cinematography, and costume design. So they were nominated for quite a bit. They yeah. won the Cesar Award for Best Production and the Felix for Best Cinematography, Best Foreign Film, and Best Costume Design. Jean-Paul Gaultier really fucking coming in hot in the 90s with that costume design. 
the costume is fucking amazing in this film. It, yeah. Everyone looks great. Um, you get to see Ron Perlman's midriff a lot, which is really fun. <laughs> so and, uh, and eventually his uh, sweater unravels and you just get to see topless Ron Perlman in his uh-huh. prime, I would say. A little Bolero situation he has going on. What is it? What does that mean? So Bolero is like the, it's called after um, Spanish bullfighter costume, Mm -hmm. but it's like where it's just like the upper part. It's like a tiny jacket that you wear that just covers the shoulders and the arms. And that's like effectively like what happens to the sweater. It becomes like just the collar and then the arms, which is a very like on point for like Gautier's style of the times. Like he loved a a midriff moment as we can see in fifth element. Like um, he loves like a Bolero moment because the, the alien costume when they're like, going through the airport she's like one of her costumes she's wearing like the human face of one of those crazy aliens is like a crazy like bolero sweater situation okay yeah yeah this was like i remember girls wearing the bolero sweater or modifying their sweaters to be like that shape like in the early 2000s late 90s early 2000s for sure yeah it was definitely a thing yeah so basically the uh the film follows uh, the main character played by Ron Perlman. His name is One in the film. He is a strong man, um, literally strong. And then also sort of a, um, you know, the trope of the carny is really prevalent in this film. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, he performs his feats of strength. Uh, we follow him as he searches for... Uh, his little brother, Mon Petit Feuer, who is kidnapped. Henri. <clears throat> yeah. He, um, he uh, ends up sort of uh, in a surreptitious and simultaneously clandestine agreement with some orphans. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> whose ringleader is a little girl named Miette. The long and short of it is that they go up against a nefarious group of uh, religious zealots. They're nefarious. The 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 cyclops. So whatever yeah. they are. I mean, they're wearing trench coats and they skulk around in the dark, stealing and children. Steal children. Right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. They're, they're just fucking stealing children. Nefarious. And yeah, yeah. And Don Rie, who is yeah, uh, petit frere. Uh, one's little brother who is just, he just found in a trash can one day, which is a really funny description of how he found. <laughs> and it's delivered to me with like such gravitas, but it, and Miette's just like, Oh brother, get out of Literally. here. <laughs> yeah. She has, she has no patience for uh, any of their, any of their antics. She's certainly the adult of the group. Um, She's you know. the most adult person in the entire movie. I would 100%, say 100%. Maybe 100%. But, Maybe second to Irv, uh, who is just a giant brain that lives in, in a, a tank. In a bath that lives in a tank. Um, he's he's adult too, but he doesn't have very much agency, obviously. But yeah, she's yeah. the most most mature person. Um, yeah, the 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 third I would argue is probably the inventor, who suffers from amnesia. Uh, yes, but he's yeah he's also damaged irreparably yep. until the, original. the very end. Yeah. 
Uh, yeah, one is he's a big strong man, but he's a dummy, so it's a kind of a classic trope. Um, he's a little delayed, unfortunately. And yeah, he just has a lot of emotions. And mm-hmm. Mia is just always like, oh, okay, well, and she she you know, she likes him. Maybe she kind of needs him. She's just kind of using him. Um, they have a sort of a strange romance. Yeah. In a weird way. Um, I did see an interview with the directors and uh, the interviewer was like, yeah, what's what's going on with this weird, like sort of like romantic tension between Mia and one and and then they did draw a parallel between that and uh, the strange romance that you see in Leanne the Professional. Oh, between... I haven't seen that. Oh, you never saw the Professional? With, I think uh... I've like seen like the like the famous clips or whatever, but yeah, it's, actually... it's it's Jean Renault and Natalie Portman, and uh, you know Natalie Portman's like uh, she's like twelve or ten or something in that film. She's like a teenager, like just a barely a teenager. Um, And the premise is that her dad is like a sketchy drug dealer and he runs afoul of some crooked DEA agents Mm. um, played by Gary Oldman is the villain in The Professional doing an insane, sweaty, cracked out, uh, wearing a white linen suit in New York City in the summer. Um, Fantastic. Just like greasy hair, listens to like takes drugs in like a very silly way where he's like cracks a pill between his teeth and just like shivers and then listens to classical music and then fucks people up sort of yeah. very incredibly villainous character. Um, but very, very similar, like uh, Jean Renault plays this like big kind of like beefy uh, assassin. He's a hitman pretty much. And he's a little dimwitted, but he's very good at his job and he takes, you know, Natalie Portman under his wing and then they do have also sort of like a weird romance um more explicit in the professional where Natalie Portman at some point was just like mm, I think I'm in love with you and he just like spits his milk out and it's <laughs> just like very she's like more like uh, lo, uh more like trying to seduce him in weird ways or flir- more uh, uh, explicitly flirting with with him but anyways there's a parallel between the two movies where like you have this sort of like big lunkhead um, and a smart, who's a, a middle-aged man and a teenage girl having like a low-key uh, sort of coded relationship. Yeah, it's, that is like the, that is definitely like one of the weirdest um, cinematic tropes that I'm fairly certain has like died at this point, for which I am grateful. Thank goodness, yes. Is uh, adults having uh, low-key relationships with <laughs> child child girls, children? Yeah. Yeah. Women? yeah yes yeah um but yeah so this like blossoming coded relationship is happening under the duress of hiding from miette's handler the um the octopus the octopus she is a um she is conjoined twins and they are conjoined from the hip to the foot and you know they are um circus performers come um orphan ringleader i guess yeah yeah it's sort of you like know? a it, 
haven't really read Dickens, but it just feels very Dickensian, right? It, yeah, just, yes, yes, yeah. very much so. And, you know, that trope has not died. We saw it carry all the way through to modern Star Wars franchise with how um, the plot line of Solo goes. That, Absolutely. you know, Absolutely. Uh, children abandoned, forced to become hardened criminals at a young age have no other option than to grow up and to be uh, charming rap scallions. That's right. Uh, played by a uh, recently uh, TBI <laughs> recovered Amelia Clark. Zing! Callback. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. There we go. Um, so good. Such a good podcast. <laughs> So, so yeah, the octopus. The octopus is great. Like I fucking love the octopus because she's like she's two separate people. They're, they're conjoined twins, but like they're cooking and they could like taste each other. Like one person, one of them will eat something, and the other like adds extra spice. It's it's so fucking brilliant. There's uh, that, so many that cooking scene is just outstanding. It's so incredible. Like yeah yeah. I mean, what's so fun about it is like they're also in a they've like put on comfy clothes to cook because they're at home yes which which i really love because like i don't know like movie characters don't change into comfortable clothes they just kind of wear their costume the whole time right but yeah they're wearing like these sort of like frumpy sweaters and they're just kind of taking it easy and cooking like a small amount of vegetables for each other yeah it's um it i think that they're they're cooking um they're cooking uh, what was it? Uh, zucchini specifically. Mm. I remember yeah. because I was like, Oh, that looks good. But yes. So they, you know, Miet and one have sort of linked up in their, um, in their search for little brother. And they go on a series of adventures throughout the city of lost children, um, which brings them to realize that little brother has been kidnapped and taken to a, I guess, is it like a old oil rig? Well, first, first he gets kidnapped and they're just like on this, like kind of like that, it's like a train, right? It's like a train of locked up children. Or am I conflating this with uh, Batman Returns? I can't remember. You might be mistaken okay. for Batman okay. Returns. Uh, no, because the... Okay, so like the city is all built on pylons. So it's all... The entire city is over the water. Oh, That's, I didn't gather that. Okay. Yes. Okay. Got so it. whatever world that they live in, the um, water is like become... Like there's no ground. There's no like dirt anymore. Mm. Uh, so it has very like water world vibes. Um, everything is built up on pylons over this ocean. And the the children are taken to a like coal, like the where the Cyclops' den is effectively, like this religious fanatic. We should probably talk about that a little bit. There is a this group of men who are um, led by a charismatic um, leader who is blind. Right. And he takes in people who are naturally blind, either um, visually impaired or completely blind. But then they also take in people who are seeing 
and those people can be blinded to participate in this cult of of uh true seeing is kind of the thing like they have this like philosophy of the that only through like this wild augmentation that they go through where they are bypassing like the cochlear um like uh hearing that is associated with the eardrum and like how sound is processed that through these augmentations is how they can truly see so they have these like implants that bypass the the ear that give them like the ability to hear sound through these artificial ways and yeah they have like microphones that they like point yeah and, and it's also they... their hearing's like overly sensitive because when donry like eats like an apple or whatever or yeah uh -huh. it's a carrot like all, yeah, a carrot yeah they they all freak out right yeah and um it seems to me too that they are given vision through like sort of almost like a lidar system like like the uh, hear me out i said <laughs> you out. see that look on my face uh -huh. yes so the way that they're seeing is portrayed uh, particularly in the um in that like that death scene that they're that they did they have these lenses right that transmit some kind of like pattern to the brain the only way that they could be seeing like this in my mind is through like a like a sound wave patterning situation right because they don't have cameras they have those sound amplifiers oh interesting okay so in my mind it's like a radar lidar situation where the sound waves are bouncing off of things and giving them like a way to see through this like audio implant right i don't know which I could... and these and these implants are provided to them by crank no who... really yeah because oh that's... i don't oh that's right that's the trade the the man the, the technology is given to them by crank in exchange for the children that's correct because yes. crank who is kind of i was i guess crank is like the villain of this story although I don't know. I guess like capitalism and like rampant technology is also kind of the villain of this film. And also pe people's gross bodies is also like the, <laughs> yeah, the, yeah. the villain of this film. Yeah. Um, but Crank is, he's like a clone also, right? Yep. Um, Crank and all the little weird clone brothers played, they're all, which are all played by Dominic Pignon um, and the brain in the vat. <clears throat> which is Uncle Irvin, and then the uh, the princess. What's her name? Oh, I don't remember. Um, Does she have an actual? Is she get Martha? Given a Martha? Martha. Yeah. Who's meant to be like the original's wife, I think, and she's mm. like a beautiful princess, sort of. Well, sorry, uh, the the brain in the tank describes her as a princess, but but she's also like a little person. Mm -hmm. So everyone is sort of cloned from the original who's played by Dominic Pignon um, or created by the original, but there's always something wrong. And Crank's, Crank, who's the main villain, um, his problem is that he's like, he can't dream, correct? Mm, yes. He and can't dream and then he ages a lot. He ages overly, overly fast. Because uh, in actuality, he's like the same age as 
the Dominic Pignon characters, the like right. very silly looking uh, clones that run around beating each other up. Um, who all have, um, who are all narcoleptic. And they're all, yeah, that's right. That's their problem is like, yeah, they're, they'll just like fall asleep, uh, slap their faces down into like piles of cake and stuff. Um, uh, yeah, so Crank is always kidnapping children and stealing their dreams. Is that what yeah. he's doing? He's tr- yeah, he's trying to steal their dreams. Uh, he's trying to steal their dreams because he thinks that if he could just dream a happy dream, that he would be able to be happy himself. Right. And he has this hack where he, like, he'll, like, sit up and be, like, falling asleep, and he gets one of the little clone brothers to, like, tell him stories <laughs> yeah. in lieu of dreams. Yes. Um, and it's, I don't know, that... That actor, um, uh, Daniela Emma Fork, mm. uh, I think I guess he's just like uh, a Chilean stage and film actor um, <laughs> who, yeah, most of his career is, is in uh, French cinema, but he's done a fuck ton of stuff. Um, he he's so good, like he's he's old as hell uh, in this movie, and his his face is so expressive and just like. Yeah, all of his crazy facial his facial facial features are really intense, um, and he's so kind of like evil and mean to the children. Um, but it, it's really you see a couple of emotional turns when Irving, the brain in the tank, is is kind of is trying to it makes him cry by yes. telling him a story, which is kind of a big exposition dump about all the characters who are living on this oil rig. Um, you know, t- talks about the clones and talks about himself the brain of the vat and and the tiny princess and talks about crank and how crank can't dream and he just gets uh crank to cry and yeah just the way that he's able to go from being like evil madman to vulnerable um it's like i love it it's just like so captivating and especially when he's like uh during that scene when the, the clones are telling him like bedtime stories and he just is such he has like such childlike wonder uh during when he's experiencing the story, the storytelling. It's a, uh, yeah, yeah it's, I love it. Um, the, the octopus is played by two actual twin sisters. They, that was not like screen. That was not like movie magic. Um, and one of them, uh, Genevieve Brune, she's a very, very um, famous in French theater. Like she's mm. a, a stage performer pre- predominantly which I thought was really interesting. Uh, and you can really kind of see that like theater aspect that comes through in a lot of the like moments in the film. I think too, you can really tell that this, that it was influenced pretty heavily by stage theater, just the way that the scenes are filmed, the moment, like it's a very um, vignette based film, right. you know, right. um, which I think is pretty awesome. Yeah, and it's, it does it does feel kind of blocked like a stage production for yeah. sure, and and ju- definitely it, it doesn't look realistic. It looks very believable, but it doesn't right. look realistic. Not at all. Um, yeah, not at all. And the the colors are are like crazy. Everything's like a nasty mm, gangrenous sort of color. Yeah, a gangrenous feel to this movie. I would say. Yeah, it's sort and of slimy that... and moldy and and dank and green. Well, there's that also that moment where Crank has the bad dream and or no, it's when the original. Okay, so 
long story short, they track down little brother. He's been taken to Crank's hideaway in the um, oil rig. And there's that moment at, towards the end of the film where like the, the nightmares released on the city and that green, the green mm. fog sort of kind of starts to travel through and you hear babies waking up crying and like dogs start barking. And it's, it's a, um, it kind of adds to that like grotesque sort of feeling that the entire, the entire film has. There's really like no moment, even when like, you know, the, the main characters are sort of like victorious in their plan that the film ever has like a joyous feeling ever. Hmm. It's always yeah. very like desolate, desperate, you know, yeah. Dark. Uh, yeah. I agree hor- with you. Horrifying. <laughs> yeah. Even at the end when they're all kind of paddling away from the oil rig, that's about to explode. Yeah. It's sad. And even like when Miette looks back, she looks, she has a sort of like forlorn expression. Right? Absolutely. And like, yeah. Yeah. And, and that's the moment where, when the original, uh, when he finally comes out of his amnesia and right. it's, it's right before a seagull lands on the plunger and then uh, blows up the whole thing. Yeah. He like shouts like, I remember or something like this. Yeah. Yeah. Um. So the, you know, the, the overall plot is really funny. It's, you know, there's like, there are a lot of like really funny moments, but it's also like many of these movies sort of um, vaguely, there are like these vaguely inappropriate themes. There are like, you know, there's like some racist overtures. There are, you know, hmm. what, the, uh, like, like where? The, ta- the, the moment in the tattoo parlor. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, it has the, um, what fucking movie was it? 16 Candles. The like, the like stereotypical Southeast Asian gong gets yeah. like struck, yeah. you know? Yeah. Um, I, I don't need to ever see, well, we're going to see it with all these old movies. They, they will never do this again. But that was the thing where like the Chinese man bows and then like a gong sounds in the background. Uh-huh. And, yeah. It's like, it's like, it's just like, you know, it's very, there's like so much, like, it's such like a, a sign of the times, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, but like overall, it's a pretty, I would, I pretty much, yeah, I loved this movie. Um, I think like, you know, I don't know. I think that the, the plot's kind of funny because there's really, it almost doesn't, it's like a very simple idea, you know? boy gets kidnapped unlikely friends get made they go through a series of harrowing trials they survive death several times they rescue little brother the bad guy is taken care of like really that is like the plot right right but the way that it's the story is told it's like there's just like all of these little things these little nuances that happen it's like they they really cram a lot into a relatively short period of time. Oh yeah. I mean, it's, it's all nuances. This, this mm-hmm. whole movie is all nuance, which is what's so amazing. Like, I think, I don't know, one of my favorite scenes is just when uh, one is sitting on the stairs, all sad. And he's just like punched the wall so hard that like people are complaining at him for like shaking the chandeliers and shit. Yeah. Um, and then like you could, 
like a little tiny cute dogs run runs up the stairs like who cares just a fucking cute dog and yep. then in the background you can just see the matte painting of like the skyline and yeah just absolutely everything like you got you got the junky uh flea circus guy yep yeah <laughs> like yep. he's just like sweaty and crying and like you know heartbroken all the time and like truly does look like every junkie we've ever met um in a weird way um yeah, uh, I think my my favorite scene is probably when when they capture one and yet and they're killing them in this like really ridiculous way that doesn't make any sense. But they have them on uh, like a pirate's plank over the water and they're tied up like within an inch of their life. It's just like big rope wrapped around wrapped from ankle to shoulders just around their body to incapacitate them. And they're on these balancing boards and like they're on the edge of the board at the opposite end of the board is like baskets of dead fish. Yeah. And as the seagulls take away the fish, then it upsets the balance and they fall into the water. Right. It's just like, it's just so ridiculous. Um, Yeah. Uh, I think that that, like that kind of whole, that whole portion of the film from, you know, when, the like whole dock side portion of the film mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. is really, really incredible. The the moment when Miet is rescued and brought into the lair of the original. And like I noticed for the first time the like skeleton with his feet in concrete, which really <laughs> kind of like it really like stages the world that they live in, right? Like that this is just like a regular thing. People getting murdered. Like people get thrown into that water all the time like toys are getting thrown into the water because the children are getting taken away on a boat. Mm -hmm. Um, The ship scene is one of the best in my opinion. And like the scale that they were able to achieve with the ship coming in the dock was just like, so cool. It was like, so, so, so cool. Well, it's, it was so good. Cause they're like, fuck, I bet they were like, Oh, we have to design a giant ship. And they're like, no, you don't just make a big wall and call it a ship. Like, it's so like you never see the whole ship, right? All right. you see is just like the prow of the sh- of the boat. Yeah. Well, I think that you know, I this is one of those movies that I wish I could see like a behind the scenes on because like I suspect that it was done in miniature. Like the, you know, they used tricks of camera to create like this like imposing situation when in reality it was probably like a like a small Thing that they filmed right to make like it five, look giant. five feet tall or whatever yeah yeah um but you know the and then the way that the octopus laughs when the um when the the ship stops right before where they're conjoined it like stops right at their foot and they just like start laughing hysterically and then they get bit by the flea and they start fighting one another. It's so awesome because the the sister that the flea landed on is the first to react and starts. And then you kind of see like you they like play it out where like she's infected first and then the second one is infected and then she starts fighting back. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not like this instantaneous thing. So there's like this like sort of like magical realism aspect to it. You know, that's how you know, if a foreign substance was introduced to two different respiratories or like circular systems, that's what it would look like. Right. 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 Oh, I see what you mean because they're so connected that it, Oh, it flows from one to the other. And then, yes. yeah, that's right. Yeah. 
Yeah. Um, and I think that uh, it really speaks to how well made this movie is because like a flea that jumps on you and injects poison into you is a completely ridiculous idea and yes. not believable whatsoever. But even down to the CGI, it just works. It works really right. well. It's very satisfying. Um, well, particularly it's very scary. considering that the poison is activated by a, a creepy song. <laughs> Yeah, that's right. Played like on a hand crank organ. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like how, like why, like who invested all that time into training these fleas, and uh, also how long, how long do fleas live for? Like, yeah, makes no okay. sense, no sense it, whatsoever. It, and he's the creepy carnival organ flea trainer guy is so invested in these fleas, like he loves them so much and when he thinks that one of them has died he's like he's as bereft for the flea as he is over having had to kill Miet for the um or have like thinking that he killed Miet for the octopus right right yeah just all the interpersonal relationships yeah the connection between the the flea circus guy and the octopus is like you explained it to me is he's like was has always been in love with him right that's how i've interpreted it because there's like there's a moment when they come to visit him to en enlist him in the crime where like you see an old weathered painting that has the two has the octopus the women mm. has them as like their younger selves in the painting with him and his flea circus right and like they they like kind of come to him to like enlist him in this like sort of like faux, you know, loving sort of like rekindling of romance sort of like connotation. And so like I've always interpreted that they're like that they had like a forbidden love in their youth mm -hmm. kind of thing mm -hmm. yeah. uh, and that he was like sort of easily manipulated by them as a result of that past. Um. Yeah, because yeah. he says he says like I'm sorry, I didn't do it for money, I did it for love. Yeah, or something like that. Something like he says some something to that. To I, or that I effect. just or just I didn't do it for money, which you you implies he did it for love. I right, guess. right. Yeah. Um, uh, you want to rate this movie or what? Yeah, let's rate it. Cool. So <laughs> in our previous episode, I did we did like you know scale of, uh, between one and five hundred, and then I did a divider. Uh, yeah. I I think I want to throw out the divider because I would like to just kind of keep track of how we rate these films. And then like, you know, in the future when we're, you know, along the lines when we're professional uh, podcasters and pulling in like, you know, five grand a month on Patreon, we can look back at our archive and be like, compare movies, you know, yeah, I think that's the scores. Good. so if we don't make the scars arbitrary, then it'll actually kind of make sense to compare them later on. Agreed. Um, all right. On a scale between one and five hundred, uh, enjoyability. I did four ninety nine. This movie is hell of enjoyable. Totally, absolutely agree. Um, the enjoyability of this film is it's so fun. It's like very, um, it's very like 
engaging. I would say I'm probably going to give it like a 475 because the, there is like a little there's like a little lull towards the end mm-hmm. where I'm where I, I find I've found myself in rewatches being able to just kind of tune out. I think we even we even experienced that ourselves when we just kind of started talking quite a bit through um, through like there's like a I can't even place where it is, but there's just like a little moment in like the third act, I would say, where you and I just kind of started talking more. Right. right. Um, so like very enjoyable, but I think there's like, I, I guess. All right, let's say this. I'll, I'm going to keep, I'm going to go with four, the 499 score, but I'm going to say four, like 475 for immersiveness because okay. I do fall out of it a little bit. Okay. Okay. So immersiveness. Uh you know what? I had four. I had four seventy five exactly for immersive. That's so funny. <laughs> yeah, I think so. I think I can't. Similarly, I, I can't exactly pinpoint exactly where we lose that, but yeah, I think it is towards yeah, like the third act. I want to say. Yeah. Um, veracity. I've got a four eighty three. It it feels very real. It feels very true. Like you, the, the people's interactions, right, with the the junkie flea circus guy and his, his um, interiority and his, his reasons for helping out the octopus. Um, you know, Mia feels like a very incredibly well-rounded character, even though she doesn't truly have that much to do and she doesn't have a ton of dialogue. Right. Um, she just, it's the way she interacts with one and just, she's like, Oh, this guy's okay. He's helpful. He's an idiot. I do kind of love him, I guess, but uh, he's he's laying it on a little thick. Like I wish he can kind of control himself, you know. Uh, yeah. All yeah, of it's, yeah. Say- the 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 machinations of of I don't know the kind of the economics of how this movie works uh, and the interactions between characters and the systems that draw everyone together. It, it all works for me more or less. Yeah, I would say. I think that the that the that the 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 way that the characters are written gives like life to an entirely fictional world. Right. Like it's, there's no, there's no place that exists that is this place. And yet the way that the, the the characters are written and the way that they're performed gives it this very like relatable real life sort of thing so it's like the world itself, completely unrealistic, completely unbelievable, absolutely not, no. But then right. the characters are so real that it's like that that split, you know. And I would, I mean, if I were going to average the two, I would have to say it's like somewhere around 400, right? Because like characters are super believable, but the world is not. So like, you know, it, there's, there's, and I think that that speaks to that sort of like magical realism kind of narrative style too. Like, let's put these real, this, these real experiences in this completely unreal world, and then still have relatability. Yeah, and, and I think that even when the things that are unreal, unrealistic, um, and you're like, this would never happen. They right. also ser- serve as very good metaphors. Like yes. the, the, yeah. the, the cyclopses are, you know, like who would ever do that? That's completely ridiculous. But is it a good metaphor for like viewing the world through social media and only, only interacting through with your loved ones and through the world outside through your cell phone? Right. Um, that's pretty, that's pretty truthful in and of yeah. itself. 
Yep. Um, yeah, and I guess that speaks to like the next topic of like, uh, did it, does it accomplish its purpose? Um, I say, I think I said four eighty three again. <laughs> for it, for I, I think we're kind of talking about the same thing here. Like, yeah, it's 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 creating a world. It's maybe doing some commentary on you know capitalism and post industrial society and how people interact with each other, um, and sort of like the nasty nature of like transactional relationships i guess and also um, like what is the value of being alive <laughs> right <laughs> yeah, you know that's, that's a good point like yeah you are you're kind of unsure of like why are any of these people still living like what right. is the point you know um, yeah and and where do you gain where do you get value from right like so this this idea that uh like the emotional toll of not having dreams and like mm -hmm. what what robs your dreams from you and like how does how do you stay youthful what ages you like all of these mm -hmm. like kind of bigger questions and so like i think that it is fairly philosophical that like it's a fairly philosophical film that is like kind of hidden in this like sort of fun sort of fantasy world right yeah. like oh yeah oh yeah so i think yeah i gave it a 490 uh, cool. it did accomplish its purpose very much. So, um, the, the intended audience, I mean, fucking art film nerds. Like, I don't know, like, I don't know who was going out and seeing this movie in 1995, 96. I mean, it's, it's kind of a classic. It has classic themes of that time. Right. Um, but yeah, I, I, I wrote the same thing. I wrote like romantic young artsy adults pretty much. <laughs> right. The main thesis, you know, I would say it is that idea of like, um, it's like this. What does it mean to live? Like live mm. well, right? Mm. Like what does it take to live well? Like because, you know, Miet and one and like don't worry they don't have much but when they're together they're happy right like at the end yeah. that's sort of like they get to like have this like happy life together right um you know and i think that they did a a good i think that if i'm remembering correctly there is this moment where you know it's little brother and little sister so they do kind of try to like flip that romantic moment into something that was just mis like it was misplaced love that could be like mm -hmm. like yeah, yeah i think they they kind familial. of hit and hit the release the re release valve on that pressure yeah on that weird romantic pressure where he's like well like don Reed's my little brother and you're my little sister so yeah, yeah I, I know i know there's some weird tension building here but we'll just like you know hit the valve on that right <laughs> make that go away um would you watch this movie again what score would you watch this movie again i mean i would on our one to one to 500 i mean this is like a yeah. this is probably like a on a flight definitely 500 mm -hmm. easy on tv with commercials absolutely not because i don't watch fucking anything with on tv with commercials <laughs> no i think i think i put these like on a flight on tv with commercials drunk by yourself at midnight streaming on purpose revival theater choose one. Oh, 
Um, like ten out of ten revival theater. If this, if oh, yeah. if like the Music Box, which is our local sort of like indie theater that shows movies that are out of print. If the music box is like, hey, we're going to show Delicatessen and City of Lost Children and Amelie, mm-hmm. um, would you go see it? I would go to all of them. 100%. Yeah. 100%. Yeah. Uh, so put you down for 500 for that one? Yeah. For Revival cool. Theater. Absolutely. Cool. All right. Uh, so my total is 2390. Let me tally up yours real quick. All right. So your score was higher than mine. 3,200, 3,263. That tracks. I mean, I loved, I love and loved this movie, you know? Yeah, I would definitely watch it again. I said like, I would even watch streaming on purpose. Um, But revival theater, absolutely. Oh yeah. hundred percent. That would be amazing. Definitely. Definitely. Um, Cue musical segue. I guess that's what we would do here. Also, it's time for a commercial. Just kidding. We don't have commercials yet, but one day, one day we will. And now a break. Now a uh, word from our sponsors. Okay. <laughs> and we're back. We are back. Thanks for uh, bearing with this uh, podcast so far. We just finished uh, wrapping our little synopsis of City of Lost Children. Let's talk about uh, 12 Monkeys. All right. 12 Monkeys. Uh, release date, December 29th, 1995 here in the United States. So yeah, it just barely squeaks in for this season's topic the year 1995 director terry gilliam written by david and janet peoples um who as we discussed they also wrote blade runner so yep. that's kind of crazy starring bruce willis madeline stowe brad pitt christopher Plummer as the villain um cinematographer roger pratt let me see what he's up to probably some other fun shit as well um monty python's the meaning of life he did brazil uh, so big gilliam collaborator Big Gilliam guy. Yeah. Uh, Paris by Night. Tim Burton's Batman. The Fisher King. That tracks. Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. Uh, the Avengers, which is not a Marvel movie. That's like, I want to say, a Ray Fiennes movie period piece where it's a bunch of like, maybe that's Liam Neeson. No, Ray Fiennes is like a secret agent British guy with a sword cane. I Literally never, what... ever heard of this before. Yeah, it doesn't exist. Um, Chocolat. Ah, love that movie. Me and my grandma Harry. used to watch it. Oh, yeah? You know, I've never seen that, actually. Um, it's really sweet. And probably po- problematic now. <laughs> what? What is the premise of that movie? Oh, goodness gracious. Uh, so, Chocolat is a movie. It's another French film about a woman and her daughter who's... The woman, the mother, she is a chocolatier, but she learned it from presumably her South American grandmother uh, because there's like um, some like there's like a special way of crushing up the chocolate. And she tells a story about how her grandmother can never stay in one place. She had to follow the wind uh, and she's exactly the same way. But basically, like there's, you know, some. There's like the the woman with a child out of wedlock trope in a religious, conservative, Catholic, French town. Uh, there's a like Roma troupe that is led by um, what the fuck is his name? 
uh, Johnny Depp. Yep. Is that where where Johnny Depp comes in? Yep. Uh, So, you know, that's problematic in itself because Johnny Depp is as best as I know, white as fuck. Um, It's like, yes, yes, he is. Right? Like, he doesn't have, he's not of, he's not. I was going to say something annoying, like Johnny Depp and I are like the same color. (laughs) So you never know, but. Vaguely ethnic. (laughs) Yeah, ethnically ambiguous. Yeah. Um. But so, you know, she's further demonized because she befriends these, the, the travelers. And it's a story about how she awakens this repressed village with her chocolate and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. It's like a romance. And I don't know. It's cute. You know, I watched it with my grandma. We loved okay. it. They, but it's like a like a love story sort of thing with like a little bit of fairy tale woven mm. through it. Um, sounds yeah. sounds low stakes to me. I don't yeah, know. pretty low stakes. Okay, that's good. How, <laughs> how do we get there? Uh, uh, this the, guy? The, yes. Oh, not Darius Kanji. That's the last guy. Roger, Roger Pratt, cinematographer. Okay. Yeah. Moving right along. Uh, awards. I think no awards, but I think like plenty of nominations. Yeah. 10 wins, actually. Yeah. Um, you know, Oscar nominations. Oh, they 10 won, wins? Oh. Yeah, they won Best Art Director from the Felix, they, the Felix Awards. Oh, okay. So again, um, they won quite a few Saturn Awards which is pretty prestigious in the sci-fi community. Best science fiction film, best supporting actor, best costumes. Mm-hmm. Um, they, you know, were nominated for Saturn's ACA's uh, Japanese Academy Awards. Didn't really realize that that was a thing. Um, they were, you know, Terry Gilliam was nominated in a bunch of international film festivals he won the Best Director Award for the UK Empire Awards. They won Best Motion, Best Performance by an Actor in a Supporting Role in a Motion Picture, Brad Pitt for the Golden Globes, which I think had more to do with Brad Pitt. Uh, although his performance was pretty out- outstanding. Um, the, the, the Brad Pitt of it all. The, yeah, Brad, it the Brad Pitt of it all. Yeah. Um, the they were nominated for five hugo awards didn't win any of them but that's still pretty incredible to be um to be nominated for a hugo yeah uh you know sci-fi universe magazine they won some best supportings and best actress there in a genre motion picture but yeah you know like pretty much like all-star cast Really excellent production. Um, I just read a hilarious, uh, a hilarious quote about um, the casting. Uh, okay. <laughs> Terry Gilliam, because he was sort of like at the height of his like, you know, Hollywood esteem, um, kind of was being pushed by the studios to hire, like put a star or several stars in the film just to really like ensure its success in the box office. And 
he had originally been pitched Tom Cruise and he was like, absolutely not under no circumstances. <laughs> will I be, uh, you know, having Tom Cruise in this role? He was also pitched Nick Nicholas Cage. He was like, no, uh, but he didn't want to originally um, he didn't originally want to uh, cast Bruce Willis because he thought that his mouth, this thing that he did with his mouth in films made his um, mouth look like an asshole. The literal <laughs> the actual quote is. Uh, I hated that pursed lip expression he does in his films when he gets a bit nervous. I thought, God, that's horrible. He does a mow with his mouth. It's a Trumpian mouth. For a moment, it goes all Trumpian. Rectal. Looks like I'm looking at somebody's asshole. That's a hot take. It's a hot <laughs> take. Um, and yeah, yeah. Bruce Willis has that sort of like uh, mid-century lipless mouth white guy mouth yeah i would say and like he purses sure. it in this weird way and the moment that i read that i was like oh yeah no absolutely 100 percent um that quote comes from a really interesting article from inverse that is uh sort of they're calling it the 12 monkeys oral history where they interviewed everybody mm. involved in the production and they just like sort of compile this like oral history of the making of the film which is really quite interesting we can include the link in our show notes. Um, but yeah, basically, um, Terry was just over overwhelmed with how cool Bruce Willis is, like smart and clever and interesting that he was like, I can get past the mouth thing. And then um, Brad Pitt actually approached Terry Gilliam about playing the role that Bruce Willis had just been hired for. And so they cast him in uh, the role of, um, oh, what's his dang name? I'm so bad at Gaines. Jeffrey uh, Goines. Jeff Goines, yeah. So they cast him in the Jeffrey Goines role. And nobody knew if he was going to be able to pull him off because Terry Gilliam had this, like, very strong desire to have this, like, motor mouth, like, thing. Yeah. Yeah. And he was like, he's like, I was genuinely scared shitless. He was not going to be able to do it. And that role, like, he fucking nailed it. That crazy eye that they gave him. Yeah. Did, did they happen to mention how he did that? Let me see. Um, places. I guess there was like an asbestos issue on one of the sets that they were filming on location, which is really fascinating. That doesn't surprise me. They... They're set in some like old fucked up buildings. Yeah. Um, let's see. Yeah, because Brad Pitt hadn't really done anything like that. Right. They do not mention how Bef what they did. I think yeah. I think they just gave him an ill fitting contact. Must that's, have been. I think that yeah. that's what it was. Like the contact that wasn't the right size for his eye, which right. is how it gave him that like wild looking eye. Yeah. So we'll see him again in seven, which yep. has already been uh, mentioned here. But yeah, I mean, prior to that. Legends like of the Fall. Yeah, like Interview with the Vampire. These are all sort of like. Serious, moody drama roles. Very, very moody. Cool World. Did you ever see Cool World? No. Cool World is Gabriel Byrne. 
Uh, it's like, I think, gosh, I don't know the difference between Cool World and Johnny Suede. Johnny Suede is like, oh, oh, completely different. Oh, Cool World is like Gabriel Bird. Oh, no. Brad Pitt. It's a live action slash animated black comedy um, starring Kim Basinger, Gabriel Byrne, and Brad Pitt. It's like a cartoonist who finds himself in the animated world that he has created. And I think Brad Pitt like lives there also. Um, so yeah, like the Jeffrey Goings character for Brad Pitt is yeah, a definitely a departure from the other stuff that he's doing at the time. Yeah. Um, what did you think about his performance? I found it on uh, older. I, as I'm older, I find it kind of annoying, but <laughs> in, in the like, I don't know, the whole, the whole movie feels annoying to me in the same way. But I think at the time it was probably like fun and probably pretty powerful and quite useful, I guess. Yeah. And I think, you know, the, the first thing that I commented on about like Brad Pitt's character and like setting the tone is the um, immediate like anti-capitalist mm-hmm. sort of uh, like exposition that he has. Right. And I just was like, oh, this is how Brad Pitt was cast in Fight Club. Like right. this role is what informed his like sort of because they're they're very they they those characters mirror each other very much. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's also you know like uh like it's a it's a trope of mental illness, you know, Brad Pitt's character. It's like you know like this like this person who's clever enough to see the world as it is, but is so uh, like, is so like has such a difficult time participating in the prescribed way of living that he has to be locked up in an asylum. Right. And I saw, you know, I very much saw glimmers of Angelina Jolie's character from Girl Interrupted. Oh, interesting. Okay. There's a couple of really strong parallels between like how their like mental illness is portrayed, you know, that that it's because they're anti-establishment that they're sick, not because they, you know what I mean, like <clears throat> that the only way they could think these things is if they were mentally ill. I I can't quite pin down exactly what uh terry gilliam is saying with the brad pitt character is he like um is it more like a generational thing is it like oh these kids these days yes they can see they can see through the mask that society is wearing and the kind of like stupid rules and social mores of of past generations but are they still so wacky that they're unable to make like a real difference <clears throat> and they're una- still unable to function. Um, I, like I just see like Brad Pitt as like, he's like a hot erratic, like trickster. Right. Um, but like, luckily he's so, he's like so goofy that he, he can only disrupt and he can't really destroy anything. Um, right. Yeah. Well, I'm just not sure. I'm not really sure what the theme is exactly. Or what, I mean, what, he definitely has like this. I think that like, there's this like element of like short sightedness, mm-hmm. you know, and that 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 he can see it, but he lacks like the follow through to actually do anything impactful. Um, and, you know, that's kind of 
it it's like it's like the the people who I don't know because there's you know there's these two competing sort of plot lines right it's this idea that the 12 monkeys are this like radical outspoken group who do this thing that destroys the world when in reality it was like the quiet doomsdayer who actually was going to destroy everything right? right and it's like I think that there is like a commentary there about like, um, you know, how, how easy it is to talk a big game, but then you don't actually do anything that affects long lasting change, you know? Um, And I think that there's a commentary about, you know, and this is true of like some of other Terry Gilliam's other work that it's like, he seems to be drawn to these stories of, the like the fringe and the outlier who is demonized by society you know and like trying to like understand how that person exists in the world that they're that they're put in um but like yeah i mean i think that the character is very well acted i just don't know I, i just feel like the character is a trope sure yeah yeah, it's well, yeah, it's, it's definitely well acted. I think the directing was kind of annoying. I found, like, when he's, like, going through his, like, Jeffrey Goins machinations and flailing about in the psychiatric uh, facility, and there's, like, little, like, cartoonish noises overdubbed over his actions. Um, yeah. It's just very silly, and I think I'm, like, not... I think that probably back then that blew people's minds, you know, cause right. no one had really done a performance like that or directed things like that. And definitely the camera angles are like real wacky and goofy. They're very it's, Gilliam. Like very Gilliam. Oh yeah. So Gilliam like that they're there. And, <clears throat> and those little moments I think are, you can see like his Monty Python roots mm-hmm. kind of yeah. showing through, you know, yeah. Yeah, having sure. to like balance everything with like levity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, just like those weird looming camera angles where like the characters are like towering over the audience. Right. Yeah. I, uh, I, I especially noticed that in the, when like, you know, um, when they're, when the escape scene is attempting to happen and Cole is like kind of stumbling towards the gate with the key in his hand and he looks through the gate bars and they do that really intense, like tracking and, um, and, uh, not perspective shift. They change like the, um, like the depth of field, and they like mm-hmm. draw out to like show like under the influence. I was like, oh yeah, that's like, that's a very, um, that's a very Gilliam sort of use of film and like to tell to like really put you in like that first person experience. Yeah. Yeah. Um. But. So, you know, having only ever seen this movie once, one time before, I sort of just was like taking notes, like as I was going through um, each scene. And, you know, one thing that I did note is how much you can tell about the world just through the the costuming and the background noise, um, because like Gilliam's like really 
sort of relies on that sound editing to really like kind of create exposition so that like you don't have to have as much in the film, which I thought was really interesting. Um, should we talk a little bit about the plot? Yeah, let's go over the plot. Or can I say just one thing? I think yeah, that yeah, I was kind yeah, of touching course. on earlier, which is that like part of these two characters, because you have the Brad Pitt character and the and the uh, Bruce Willis's butthole mouth character, um, and it it almost feels like Boomers versus Gen Xers. Um, oh sure, yeah. Because because you have like, uh, yeah. It, it, <laughs> and going back to what you're saying, it's like sort of like the Brad Pitt wants to make a change, but he's just as up to shenanigans. Right. And it almost feels like Terry Gilliam's like um, talking about like, oh, kids these days, like you're, you're wacky and you have some good ideas, but you can't really make any change. Unfortunately, the only generation that can make a change is the Gen Xers and they're just hell bent on destruction. I'm unfortunately, right. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry to tell you, but like they're earnest and they're hardworking and they're smart, um, but they're a little bit too nostalgic and they're just going to destroy. They're just cut off the nose despite the face they're just going to destroy the world that's that was kind of um what struck out to me yeah like brad brad pitt as sort of like childlike nostalgia based like he like brad pitt's character would be like your age in actuality yeah. thereabouts i think he's younger i think he'd maybe be a little bit younger me. actually yeah. yeah i i like imagined him like in the middle to late 20s Maybe uh, late, like maybe yeah. late twenties, and then he enlists this like naive group of young twenties, like, like the. Oh no 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 no! I'm sorry. I mean uh, Bruce, Bruce Willis. Willis. Bruce Willis's character, like I just I mean like time timeline wise, like yeah. that character was probably born in the early to mid eighties, right? Yeah, probably. Um, probably yeah. And he has all this like, kind of unbelievable nostalgia for like fifties and sixties music. Right. Which, which like, I don't know. I don't think, I don't, I don't think if I think if I like never heard music, I would be like, Oh, I really love, you know, this 60 music that's playing on the radio. I would be more like, Oh yeah. The spin doctors. I love it. Well, I feel so. like it's what his parents would have listened to. Oh, I guess so. I guess that makes you sense. You know, yeah. the radio that he would have listened to growing up from age born to age eight, when he went to live underground, uh, you know, that would have been, you know, his parents would have probably been listening to a lot of stuff from like the sixties and seventies. Right. You know, that makes sense. Yeah. Um, and it, you know, he, so like, okay. So he was eight in 96, right. Right. Cause that's, okay. yeah. cause that's the timeline when he had to go live underground. He said he moved underground when he was eight. So that would have made him be born in, 89 yeah 88 89 something like that. so he would have been younger than me right which is insane because i feel like he looks like he's 45 years old <laughs> well yeah he does he you is. know yeah um but yeah so in like so and then they say 30 years later so he's 38 in the film yeah so he is my age now but he is technically younger than the character is younger than I am. He's like Got a dick. Yeah. So he's an elder millennial. Before we knew about the term millennials, you know? Exactly. Oh yeah. That kind of blows my, uh, <laughs> blows my theory apart. 
No, because you got you have like uh, Doctor Peters, I believe his name is David Morris is Doctor Peters. Right, he's, he's a boomer the, for he's a boomer. sure. He's a boomer who's destroying the world. Right, yeah. Doctor Peters, um, the you know the dad too, like Goins's father. Yeah, like even you know, and then the the. Uh, the psychiatrist, she's very much a Gen Xer. You know, yeah. Goins <laughs> is a Gen Xer, technically, right? Oh, and, very much so. Yeah. You know, and so like we have this like this in the moment, this in very much in the Gen X moment, look at Gen X and the boomer generation. Mm-hmm. And then we have the introduction of someone who is not of that generation who is younger than that those generations but the way that it's portrayed like they they never really expected i don't think anybody expected our generation the the elder millennials to be as um as like radical or artistic like i don't know what they thought we were going to be because like uh, you know, maybe that that is part of the commentary. Like the future is so unknown, the future is so at peril. Because even in '96, we were starting to see conversations around global warming. We were starting to see conversations around uh, like explosive population. We were starting to see conversations around what does that like what what does uh the future hold now that we're having these technological advancements and everything right so they had really no way to really hypothesize what our generation was going to be like so he has sort of like a non-personality covered up by these like this like global tragedy right you know yeah interesting that's a good point yeah because the bread Bruce Willis character. I've been yeah. talking for too long at this point. Yeah. Uh, the Bruce Willis character, yeah, doesn't really have much of a personality. He's just kind of rage. He's like either quiet and soft or rage filled. Right. Um, okay. And kind of like nothing really in between. Right. And like, you know, he's dealing with he's his personality is basically the loss of everything. Yeah. Right. His just, his personality is trauma. Yeah. So they got and, that and one it, right. They nailed that. <laughs> Our entire yeah. generation would be fueled by trauma. So Right. Yeah. Like and yeah, his his whole generation is like a lost generation, right? They all right. they all have to go underground. That's why he's so childlike all the time. He he's he falls into these childlike lapses where he's behaving like a child. Right. Um okay, so yeah, the plot is mm, there's a worldwide there's a pandemic. Right? In nineteen ninety six. Can't imagine what that would be like. <laughs> everyone has to um yeah shelter in place in these tiny little cubicles i i can't help but feel uh his his little cage that he lives in with his his cool hammock i just Mm -hmm. always i found it so cozy and i always felt a little jealous and i want to just like live in a trench coat and live in a sleep in a hammock made out of a shower curtain in my little box by myself uh, how, do you still feel like that after I do. I do, yeah. 18 months of living in a tiny box <laughs> well, wearing a know, robe? 
You know, I went to work every day during the pandemic. Yeah, that's true. Like I went I... out of the house and masked up and, you know. I did not. I worked in a machine shop the whole time. So, and I also lived at the beach. I lived in a tiny box at the beach. Yeah, that's, that's pretty nice. In front of my bedroom window was Ocean Beach Pier. Uh, and so we got out, even though surfing was outlawed for a period of time there. That was so kind of crazy. Wild. It that's, was so wild. That's, yeah. That's and you could, wild. you could get a ticket from cops with their noses hanging out of their masks for like surfing or getting in the water at the time. So they never explicitly say why Bruce Willis is in prison. Yeah. So that's kind of the thing is like, that's kind of lends to the lack of veracity with this film at times is he acts like a child because they're like we were kind of led to believe that he goes from living in the normal world to living in a cage and sleeping in a hammock made out of a like a shower curtain right. um immediately but like just because he went underground doesn't mean he immediately went to prison like right. he may have had like a he would have had a normal life he would have like lived with his parents, parents. yeah and friends whoever that was he would have had a normal community and probably would have grown up to be a normal person right um so that's a kind of like weird plot hole i think that it's a terry gilliam movie like it is there's like a lot of magical shit going on and you're not really supposed to like look behind the curtain too much yeah and just kind of enjoy the ride i think enjoy the aesthetics enjoy enjoy just the crazy plot that's happening yeah um, um, I do want to say that I have to leave the house in like 25 minutes. Oh, fuck. You want to wrap this shit up quick then? That or we ha- will have to pause it and pick it up. Let's do a speed. Let's do a speed run. How do you speed feel? Speed run. Yeah, do we can it. do that. <laughs> I'm like, I don't want to pick this up. We're already okay. at like two hours plus. So yeah. Um, okay. So the plot line is loosely let's just hold on do you do you need time to get ready and stuff i don't want to i'm literally just no it's it'll be fine just walking out the door okay pretty much throwing a hat on um so plot line is loosely we pick up in the past or in the future uh they have developed some kind of time travel scheme to go back into the past to try to pinpoint the moment when the virus was released to uh, attempt to possibly develop a vaccine or some kind of cure to restore humanity to the surface after they've taken shelter underground. Uh, They send Bruce Willis back in time uh, several times, the first of which he is sent to the wrong time. He meets Goins. He talks about the virus. He gets pulled back. He gets sent back to the correct time, 1996. Uh, But having already been in that world, he uh, recounts, like he re-encounters several of the characters he met his first time around. And long story short, he is uh, attempting to stop the virus from being released, for which he blames himself because he was sent to the wrong time and gave Goins the idea to release a virus. Turns out, wasn't Goins. He was ineffectual, to say the least. And everything happened in exactly the way that it was supposed to, which was he bruce willis's character ends up dying in an attempt to stop the virus so all this has happened before all of this will happen again thanks (laughs) no no resolution it's all circular he watches himself die as a child which Um, is probably the most realistic part of this whole thing it is an accurate description of a time paradox like yeah yeah 
yeah, it's it's weird timey wimey shit, but it's well done. I would say as far as timey wimey stuff, it's well done. Yeah, like time travel shit because that's always tricky and kind of unbelievable. But I kind of dig it. Um, I think the esoteric nature of the time travel process is is kind of fun. Um, just the whole mechanism, the fact that he accidentally goes back to like World War One, and he's like in trench warfare shit, naked, running around. Oh, yeah. great amount of great amount of Bruce Willis buns in this movie. Mm. Mm-hmm. Love it. Mm-hmm. Yep. Give me uh, more. A few things that I. <laughs> I have a few things that I I wrote in my notes as they were happening was, oh shit, a bear. <laughs> and, then, uh-huh. and then, oh shit, a lion. Yeah. Um, the I wouldn't trust that chair either when he go, gets brought in to be sat in front of the doctors. Um, right. I thought that the mechanical device element of this movie and the mechanical device element of City of Lost Children, there's a really awesome parallel there. Um, that's funny you said oh shit a bear and I wrote bumps into a bear (laughs) Um, much more casual uh, you know I think that there's something that can be really like sort of uh, there's something to be thought about about the fact that trying to explain a time paradox to a bunch of doctors who already have a penchant for disbelief is a Sisyphean task right Uh, there, there is like a Sisyphean element to the entire film Oh, for sure. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, uh, <laughs> I wrote lull the feathers, you know, in the <laughs> in the asylum where uh, uh, Brad Pitt rips up the pillow. And then it's just an inordinate amount of feathers falling for the so long, just like so unrealistic amount of feathers. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I then... Uh, sh- Oh, go ahead. One of my notes is, hey, Christopher Maloney. (laughs) I actually wrote, I actually wrote, I wonder if this is how he got cast in Law and Order. Totally. Yeah. Um, The, the, I attempted to see if there were 12 monkey references throughout the film. Oh, interesting. Did you? I got one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. I got seven monkey explicit monkey references that were not related to the story okay got it uh there might be 12 i'm not sure i started thinking about stuff like that when i realized that the movie 200 cigarettes was called 200 cigarettes because they smoked 200 cigarettes throughout the entire film oh wow yeah i didn't did not realize that either yep um Um, i i was struck by the excellent pre-9-11 air travel rules mm -hmm. um remember back then you could just be like Oh, I'm just going to go through security. Like you still have to go through security, but you're like, I'm just going to walk my friend to their gate. Like no big deal. Yep. Um, And also there's just a straight up shooting in the airport and people are still chilling. And like, remember like the villain just gets on his plane on time. They don't ground any of the planes. (laughs) There's there's a straight up fucking shootout at the airport. And they're like, yeah. Oh, hello. Yes. I'm traveling to Miami or wherever he's going to. He's going to San Francisco first. Oh, that's what it is. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. Um, I asked the question, is Fifth Element just if Cole had been sent to an alternate future or perhaps what the world would have been like if the virus had never been released? Right. You know, I'm yeah. constantly trying to tie the Fifth <laughs> Element into um, other Bruce, Bruce Willis movies. Yeah. Because somebody else proposed that the Fifth Element is actually just the last Die Hard film. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> 
That's great. Um, you know, there's a lot of a lot of reference to the four four horsemen of the apocalypse. Um, there's like some biblical stuff, and uh, <laughs> the last thing that like okay the the last two things that I thought that I was like that were just like what um was I want to okay this is so pedantic but how the fuck was were we supposed to believe that uh the doctor was able to blend the edges of a lace front wig in a shitty movie theater bathroom oh yeah yeah that that (laughs) that fucking wig was absolutely 100 percent like a human hair lace fronted wig and the edges were perfectly blended and like you have to have acetone you have to have scissors you have to have like a full makeup situation but they couldn't figure out how to keep fucking the Bruce Willis's mustache on. Like, <laughs> I think they're, yeah, they're addressing that tension where they're like, no, 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 it's shitty. Trust me. It's really shitty. See the mustache is falling off. And right. then like, what, what I noted at that point was like, they're all goofy and giddy at that point. But like, Oh, I guess they think that they solved the problem. Yeah. They, 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 they thought that, well, they were like, everything's going to be fine. She she was still operating in like a world of disbelief that the virus wasn't real, and because Goyans didn't release a virus, he released the animals from the zoo. That like that that meant that you know Bruce Willis's character actually was schizophrenic, and that they didn't have anything to worry about. She's like, um, lol, lol. He's just crazy. I guess I'll go to the Key West so the, with him. Yeah. There's also like four different references to the Florida Keys throughout the movie. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, and then the last thing that I was like, what the fuck? The doctor, the fucking doctor was sitting next to the guy with the briefcase on the film and she introduces yeah. herself and she was like, I w- I'm an insurance. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's like another one of those like weird um, Gen X pot shots that Terry Gilliam is taking at, I don't, I don't know what ramp- rampant capitalism, I guess, or. That's that's gotta be what the, I don't I don't know I don't know well, what like, that was about I could, the, I could have done without that I think. Well, to me, it's like is the inference there that they knew they knew what happened and they knew where it happened and that they should have been able to they should have been able to pinpoint it and stop it and that all of this like going back in the past and like all of the time travel shit was them attempting to prove that they like because like you know she if she knew that that's who she had been sitting next to he was infected so wouldn't she have been infected he opened the vial right in the airport well like one way to look at it is that the dude you know bruce willis's neighbor from jail gives him the gun in the airport And one way to look at it is that he went back to the future and he reported, okay, well, I saw him get shot. So that's clearly the dude who lets out the virus uh, is here on this flight. So in theory, she could have gone back in time to to do, but she is also now infected because everyone's infected. So yeah, I don't know how that resolves anything. Right. I don't know. That was just a weird thing. I was like, what the fuck? All right. So no... 
do you agree? Like no real resolution. This is just like a circular thing. We're yeah. stuck forever. A hundred percent. We're just fucked forever pretty much. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yep. That feels, that feels relatable to, to reality. Should we rate it? Let's rate it. Okay. okay. I'm going to say enjoyability. I don't know. 368. I was going to say 375. Yeah, I'm a little older now, and it doesn't hit in the same way as it used to, probably when uh, I first, first saw it, you know? You know, living through a global pandemic, I think, really, really, uh, really seasoned seasoned this one for me. Uh, you know, because, like, I, I will not watch anything that is about the coronavirus. Like, yeah, I, there have been several shows that have tried to, like, be about our experience and i'm just like you guys can get fucked i am not (laughs) i am not prepared to fucking watch a fucking show about this already like Mm. get out of here with that um veracity i mean it's completely unrealistic every aspect of it is completely unrealistic like the characters are not to me very like like the the doctor's arc i think that the only part of this that really held any type of like realism to me was her reaction to him kidnapping her in the beginning right like yes. in the car you yes. know yes. but like that it all it all kind of just unravels from there i'm going to give this a 185 yeah i did 200 yeah um i would say like thematically honest but the actions and personifications of character lack veracity, too campy, cartoonish. Yeah. I mean, um, they literally they literally draw a parallel to a cartoon. There uh-huh. is a cartoon playing where the, the mad scientist has invented the time tunnel, you know? Right. Yeah. Um, I think that there's also possibly, like, an element of this is, like, are we supposed to think that maybe... Are we supposed to go through the arc that um, that Bruce Willis is going through and like recognize that he he too is he has this moment where he's like maybe i am just crazy and i'm like are we supposed to think that as well like maybe this entire thing was just a figment of his imagination the whole time possibly yeah that that didn't that didn't work for me yeah i was just like i was like can we just get past this please yeah you know um, um it is immersive though yeah, it's an immersive yeah. film it and that is i think one of terry gilliam's strengths is that he can build these worlds that are so unrealistic but do like send you into it you know there are moments where i was like taken out of it like uh there's an eagle call in the middle of the night when he's running through the forest there an eagle would not be calling in the middle of the forest in the middle of the night in like you can, you can hear the sound of an eagle being like Rah! yeah it's like Rah! Rah! <laughs> and it's like okay we are in the suburban forested region of pennsylvania and there is a, an eagle call as he's running through the forest no yeah. it was like that was like that was intense enough for me to like distinctly notice it. Is there some, some symbolism there? Probably. Do I know what it is? No. <laughs> I think like Terry Gilliam just kind of needs someone to like take the reins yeah. at some point. He just kind of mm-hmm. goes out of control. So what, what's your score for immersive? I put, I did 495. I might actually scale that back. I'm going to, I'm going to say like a solid 382. 382. Yeah. <clears throat> hmm. 
I'm going to do 435. Nice. Yeah. Uh, did it accomplish its purpose? Yeah. 483 is what I said. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm going to say like, I'll say 425. I mean, it, 425. It, yeah. I mean, if its purpose was to be like an entertaining, uh, like, and hypothetical look at a time paradox, yes, it accomplishes purpose. Is it a social commentary? I don't know. You know, it comments. <laughs> it comments on society, but what commentary is it making? Right. You know, exactly. and maybe that's because we're looking at it through this lens of like back in time. I know we're going to make so many enemies based on our opinions of these movies. Like I am aware of it. I am probably going to just get like raked over the coals on the internet when these uh, fucking episodes are released. But like, there's like, don't, I don't care. I don't either. And it's just like, you know, it's, um, it is, it, everybody's going to disagree about everything, but like, it's a good movie. Like it's good. It's just like, what was, what is the point of it all? If the point of it all is to just be entertaining, hell yeah, definitely. If the point of it is to make some kind of like social commentary, then what is it commenting on? Is it commenting on like the fear of uh, of the loss of control? Is it commenting on the fear of like the ruin of society? You know, we could go deep into all of those things, but like at the end of the day, it's it's just a like a wacky Gilliam film to me. You know? Yeah, yeah. Like, are we all trapped in a never-ending? self-referential capitalist hellscape that's kind of yeah that's kind of like the theme that i that i get from this movie well, like then 500 <laughs> out of 500 because fucking yeah we are we sure and are we've known yeah. it all along yeah yeah all right um, would you watch this you, again i said 315 on which which category uh i'm gonna say i would definitely do revival theater yeah i think it'd be really like, fun if it came back yeah I don't think I'd watch this on a flight. I definitely would not watch a TV with commercials. Streaming on purpose, I don't think so. But yeah, revival theater, definitely. Yeah, I think so. I think definitely like a 375. Like school night, probably not. Free weekend matinee, sure. Yeah. We'd go yeah. do that. Yeah. Or like, a, yeah, there again, like a double feature with like Brazil. Yes. You know. Uh, I would Doc, not. Doc, Dr. Parnassus just for kicks. Uh, what is the other one? The time, the time bandits. Oh yeah, time bandits. Yeah, that that, that's very long. I, is it really? I have never made it all the way through. Uh, speaking of being a time bandit, huh? Yeah, right to the right to the end. Um, so overall, I think that these movies were great to look at together. Definitely. Um, I think that there was like a lot of really cool parallels. Um, I hope that this like inspires people to like watch them together too. Cause I think that would be really fun, you know? Um, yeah. But yeah. Should we close this out? Yeah. Thank you again for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please remember to rate review, subscribe. And in case you need to be reminded, you go to the charge nurse and tell her a day and time. The show you want to see is on. 
but you have to tell her before the show is scheduled to be on. There was this guy, and he's always requesting shows that had already played. Yes, no, you have to tell her before. He couldn't quite grasp the idea that the charge nurse couldn't make it be yesterday. She couldn't turn back time. Thank you, Einstein. Now he, he was nuts. He was a fruitcake, Jim. Incredible. Beth Martini, thank you for the episode. Thank you. 